When our best fur friends leave our world, many of us are left wanting one last scritch, one last hug, one last walk together. One Last Network is a space for pet guardians to honor their pets in their senior years and to cope with the days leading up to and after their passing. Here's your host, Angela Schneider, founder of One Last Network and Big White Dog Photography in Spokane, Washington. Hey there, listeners. We spend a lot of time talking about the grief we experience as pet guardians whose companion animals have grown old or become terminally ill. There are other types of loss and grief, though, that pet guardians can experience. Many carry with them elevated levels of trauma, sudden death, runaways, theft, loss of custody due to the end of a relationship. And I would love to interview someone on those very subjects. Today, though, we're talking about behavioral issues in our companion animals, especially dogs, and the way we manage and treat reactivity or aggression. Dr. Kyle Boland of the Ohio State University Veterinary Medical Center joins me to talk about his work in behavioral studies and the intricacies around behavioral euthanasia. Dr. Boland was born and raised in Fremont, Ohio, and completed his undergraduate degree in economics at the University of Akron. After graduation, he earned his master's in science in agricultural, environmental, and developmental economics from Ohio State University. Along the way, he realized veterinary medicine was his true calling, a career he'd dreamed of since childhood. He graduated from the OSU College of Veterinary Medicine in 2018 and worked in general practice doing preventive medicine, general medicine, urgent care, surgery, and dentistry. All the while, he was working on his residency program in behavioral medicine at OSU and then joined the faculty full-time. His topics of interest lie in end-of-life care, pain management, and the behavior of shelter-housed animals. He lives in Columbus, Ohio with his wife, his six-year-old child, four senior dogs, one cat, and a few fish. Come listen in as Dr. Bolin shares the science of reactivity in our companion animals and the state of managing care today. Good morning, Dr. Kyle Boland. How is life in Ohio these days? Things are well. Things are well. Let's get started by talking about reactivity in dogs in general. Are we seeing an uptick in the prevalence of reactive dogs, or are we just learning to see it, acknowledge it, and treat it better? I think I think it's both, um, but I I definitely think we're seeing an uptick, and I think it largely resolves, or I think it comes from how we manage dogs today. They're they're just managed differently than they were even 20 years ago, 30, certainly 40, 50 years ago. Um, it's more urban, it's more tight knit. Um, there's less off leash opportunities. There's less dog dog socialization opportunities. So I I think overall we are seeing an uptick in the prevalence of reactivity. And I do think we're better at recognizing it and treating it. Um, there's been an evolution in dog training over the last many decades, and we're getting there and we're getting better. Um, veterinarians are getting more educated on behavior. 
Um, that some of the, when we go to the Midwest Vet Conference here in Ohio, which is one of the largest regional vet conferences, oftentimes the behavior talks are standing room only. And so yeah. I think veterinarians are getting more knowledgeable about treating and um, talking about preventing behavioral disorders, which is great. And I think, so we're probably better at recognizing it as well, but it's probably a mix of both. How does early socialization and, and positive experiences as a puppy play a role in preventing behavioral issues in dogs? Yeah, well, it's that's really key. So when I am sitting in an exam room and talking to a client about their dog or cat or whatever it is, their behavior and sort of everybody wants to know why. Why is their dog or cat like this? And there's usually we can't point to one cause. But I will say that, you know, we kind of go back to that whole um, nature versus nurture mentality. And the more we learn about that, it's not nature versus nurture. It's really how your genes interact with your environment. And so some dogs and some people come to the table with um, certain risk factors for behavioral disorders, psychiatric disorder, disorders, diseases, whatever. And what happens with early socialization is when we miss that with dogs, some dogs can certainly continue to cope with that. But by and large, we're missing out on that prime socialization period where their brains are sponges and they can absorb all the new information in the world and dogs essentially decide what's safe or unsafe. And I actually just had this conversation with a client yesterday. They had adopted their dog um, at 12 weeks of age. And their dog was an adult now, say three years of age, and they were having some, some issues. And when I had talked to them about that socialization period, their mouth was open. They couldn't believe that, oh my gosh, I thought I was adopting a puppy and could shape this dog into whatever I wanted at 12 weeks. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. We know from studies back in the 50s and 60s that said basically, yeah, their socialization period is about three to 12-ish weeks, plus or minus a week or so. And what we know is that if you miss that or have a um, kind of a lack of good experiences during that time, we have lifelong changes in the brain that uh, we're still trying to understand. And you can't undo that. And so you can't take a 12-week-old dog and you, you can do all the right things at 12 weeks of age but if they missed out on some of those important things between three and 12 weeks, we can't undo that. And so, um, and sometimes it gets more confusing because sometimes that doesn't show up until nine to 12 months later, but it's, it comes from those early, that early socialization period that we potentially missed out on um, back when they were, they were puppies. So to answer your question directly, it's vital and it's very important for our dogs. So then if we're looking for a dog as a puppy, um, one of the things we should look for in a responsible breeder is someone who has taken the time to socialize those puppies beyond their litter mates and their parents. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's all about, so you can really, people should be starting very early with um, touching their puppies, handling them. And then yes, once they start to open eyes and ears and um, you know, start to move around. Yes, we should absolutely be um, socializing them. I always hesitate to use the word exposure 
because exposure and, and that's kind of comes from human mental health because people will talk about exposure therapy. Um, in dogs, we tend to not talk about it as exposure because if we just expose a dog to things, we don't necessarily determine how they perceive those triggers. So in other words, if I take my eight-week-old brand new puppy out to PetSmart and the puppy, you know, looks, oh, maybe he's a little wiggly or maybe he's approaching other dogs or people or, you know, or maybe we're holding the puppy and maybe they're a little bit head shy. Um, that level of exposure can sometimes actually be more detrimental than other than a lack of exposure. So we want to make sure we're socializing, which means we're exposing the dogs at their own comfort level and we're making it always a positive, good experience. So we talked about this a bit off camera. The COVID pandemic really screwed a lot of things up then for uh, dog guardians, puppies, and and dovetail that into what we're experiencing right now with this uh, respiratory illness, this mystery respiratory illness, which I'm kind of calling canine COVID because it sounds an awful lot like COVID for dogs. Yeah, it's definitely a concern. So um, just kind of back to the first point. Um, yeah, we're seeing in our clinic a definite uptick in some certain behaviors like reactivity, like separation anxiety and things that we call conflict-related aggression, which essentially is aggression from a dog to a known family member. The definition, people use various definitions in that term, but I think that comes from being kind of locked in that home environment without a lot of um, outside interactions. So we're, we're seeing an uptick of those behaviors because number one, COVID changed a lot of things in how people manage their life. So sometimes people are home more, which at first people are like, oh, this is the greatest thing for my dog. You know, I'm going to be home working all the time and my dog's going to love it. And by and large, that's probably true for the average dog. But there are definitely dogs that that probably was not true for. So for example, a dog that maybe they had three or four kids in the house and schools were closed and we were doing online learning. And that's just too much for that dog. Maybe they needed that eight hour decompression period period away from some of the family members. So while on some level, COVID was probably good for some dogs in the fact that, yeah, they got to spend more time with their people. For some dogs, that may not be true. It also may not be true that, hey, they got to spend eight hours a day extra with their people, but then, oh, COVID, you know, we things got a little better people started going back to work and then, oh, hard stop. Now we're, you know, chewing on drywall or ripping up carpet, carpet or, you know, pacing, panting, urinating, defecating in the house because we're anxious. So we've seen that too. And then COVID just, it shut a lot of things down. So puppy classes were canceled and people just didn't take their dogs as many places, nor did they have people or dogs over as much. And so they had those lack of experiences. And like we just talked about with that socialization period, it's profoundly, um, it can have profound negative consequences that are lifelong and permanent for their, their brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. So um, with the new respiratory virus th that, you know, I'm still trying to stay updated on what the latest news is. Um, certainly not my specialty. We have our 
head of our emergency and critical care unit just uh, came out yesterday or the day before and said he's not aware of any known cases that we've seen here at Ohio State, which is good. Um, but respiratory disease is one of those things, like people, most of the time when a dog gets a cough or a cold, you know, you just kind of, they just kind of get over it. You don't always have to take them to the vet. And so we don't always do a lot of testing on those types of things. Um, and then, you know, once you get maybe older or um, the you know, dog has other comorbidities like heart disease or allergies or things like that, then they start to get a little bit more serious. And so right now, I, we're still as a veterinary community still trying to figure out what's going on. You know, maybe this is a new respiratory pathogen that has either it's a new pathogen or it's mutated and it's um, evading the immune system, evading detection. Um, it could also be just, hey, maybe there's an uptick in what we've already got out there in respiratory illnesses. And then there's that snowball of the news cycle. So a couple news sources pick it up and then it becomes a noteworthy story and then it snowballs from there. And then once you have that dog that's coughing that you probably wouldn't have said anything before. You probably maybe wouldn't have even gone to the veterinarian for it. They, it probably was self-limiting. You know, now maybe it's like, oh, hey, I'm going to call my veterinarian. I'm going to report that. And so we might just be seeing an uptick of, of things. I mm -hmm. am, um, I, I am, uh, my wife and I both love disaster movies and apocalyptic movies. <laughs> so I, I tend to, to try, to steer into the more apocalyptic thinking of things. Um, but I might try to use my rational veterinarian brain to not do that. But certainly as globalization has happened, as um, the population increases, as food demand increases with, um, with animal um, protein, all of those things certainly do make me worried about future pandemics. So um, part of it maybe is a rational fear um, of, of us as a veterinary com community. But uh, we do love a good disaster movie, but hopefully um, that, that doesn't mean this is going to turn into anything like that. When we talk about reactivity, um, early socialization of your dog becomes, is impossible when we're adopting dogs from a shelter dogs that are mm -hmm. probably already adults mm -hmm. how common is trauma a cause of reactivity in dogs can trauma happen at the shelter mm. oh my gosh that is that's that is such a good question and the short answer is yes to all of that um so the way I look at this is, um, so let me actually back up a little bit. So, so I'm a veterinarian and I practice what we call behavioral medicine. So mm -hmm. that's essentially, you know, colloquially, I'm a psychiatrist for dogs and cats and other veterinary behaviors. They practice with horses and birds and pocket pets and lots of other things. And so, um, we, have we are still a relatively new field and um the college of behavior was formed in the in the 90s and we're still evolving and, and we don't have the um the same level of specificity that they do in the human field of say a dsm or a diagnostic and statistic manual for 
um, diagnosing things like PTSD, like trauma and various anxiety disorders. And so the terminology can be a little bit fluid in, in our field. But the way I look at things is I look at a cat brain or a dog brain, and certainly there are profound differences, like, you know, in their, um, you know, uh, you know, how they can do, um, you know, forethinking in terms of I'm going to think about things in th three months from now. And certainly their, um, you know, how they process um, smells is, is very much more advanced than, than what we can do as humans. So there are certain differences. But at the core, a lot of our mammalian neurology is the same. And so whenever I see a pet, I never discount what experiences they could have that could be like a human experience. And so the way I look at trauma, I look at it personally, I look at it no different than you or me. So if we had early life trauma, that can um, have profound impact into how we perceive the world, our neurochemistry, how we can even perceive pain and chronic pain issues. And all of that can change with, with trauma. And we have some data in, in, in dogs about some of these things, but we're still learning a lot. There is a diagnosis for dogs that we use uh, that's PTSD-like syndrome. And so that came out of some work um, uh, from the military working bases and the military working dogs, looking at largely shep German Shepherd dogs and Malinois that have um, suffered profound trauma, emotional tra trauma um, overseas, whether that was a, a bomb exploding um, or any number of other things, and would come home with very similar manifestations of PTSD like a human patient would have. And we found that treating them, they can, they can absolutely do better, but they'll often have lifelong um, consequences of those traumas. And whether trauma is early or late, you can have some of those lifelong consequences. But there's a plethora of research in children, early life experiences, and how trauma can relate to future um, behavioral disorders and psychiatric disorders. And we absolutely see that in, in dogs. Back to the shelter question. Yeah, I, I love shelters. I have four dogs from a shelter and um, I've worked with shelters. I've done research in shelters. And if I, you know, future dogs, I'll probably get from another shelter. But even with the best of intentions and the best hearts, shelters are a stressful place for dogs and cats yeah. and other animals. And so it's something that I definitely think about a lot that when you go through the shelter system, that right there to me is a check mark. That is a that is a, a life trauma that that I think about that can absolutely have behavioral impacts. Certainly, the longer you're there, tends to correlate with additional trauma. Um, back to your question on reactivity, we do see a lot of shelter dogs with reactivity. If we think about, it makes sense because if we think about how shelter dogs are managed, mostly managed in a kennel environment. And then what happens is dogs and people walk past. That can be one of two things for a dog. That can be scary. And so you might give them a little growl or you give them a little bark. And then what happens is that dog or person moves along. So you are very much rewarded for that little vocalization that you made. And what happens is that then snowballs over time to become more and more 
um, of a prominent display and you get dogs that are highly, some of my most reactive dogs have spent much time in the shelter practicing those behaviors. So the other thing that can happen is, well, maybe you have good intentions and maybe you're just frustrated because, hey, oh my gosh, there's a person there. I wanted to interact with them or there's a dog there and I want to play with them. But what happens? They walk past. So that's frustrating for you. So then also that frustration can sometimes boil over into reactivity and aggression and actually barking, lunging, snarling, or, or growling. So the shelter's environment can certainly cause some reactivity in our patients. And that's something that we try to work on. And shelters can certainly, there are certainly things that shelters can do as well to start to prevent some of those things. Assuming a shelter dog has experienced trauma before entering the shelter, how does not knowing that on your part impact your assessment and then management of those issues? You know, honestly, probably not a ton. We, you know, our, our practice can be a little bit difficult in that regard. And I've often talked to um, human um, uh, medical doctors who are uh, pediatricians and they'll be like, you know, your, your job's pretty similar to ours because we treat babies and they can't talk to us. And so, yeah, that's kind of like, you know, being a veterinarian because we're, we're investigators. We've, we have to try to figure out what's going on in their head or what's going on in their body um, whether it's, you know, lab, you know, work or imaging that we can try to do for a behavioral disorder. We take a really, really in-depth, deep history, but sometimes, like you said, the pet just comes to the table and we just don't know. So it can just make our assessments a little bit more vague and say, okay, well, this pet comes to the table with some sort of early life trauma, potentially genetic changes, maybe mom stress is part of things, maybe socialization, uh, their socialization period is part of things. But here's the dog that we're presented with today. So here's the dog at one or two years of age, and here's the behaviors that we see today. So how do we basically just move them forward from here, maybe not knowing what they had? Because we're not going to do things like you would do if you go to a, a psychotherapist, and you're not going to say, well, let's talk about your daddy, you know, your issues with your dad and your issues with your mom, you know, in an early life, right? We, we can't talk, we can't do talk therapy with our, our pets. So the pets come to the table with us. Um, to us with certain things. And so we're going to then move forward based on the pet that we see that day. What changes in managing uh, reactivity is your research making and how do we filter that down into the very unregulated training community? Oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> that's a question. <laughs> Oh boy. Um, well, I just load up that gun and fire the shot. <laughs> yeah. So the research that I've done in the shelter is basically we're still looking at what is happening, not necessarily how to change it. And so the, the research that I did over the, oh, during the pandemic actually was we um, took a validated measurement tool called the CBARC. And any of your listeners can go online and search CBARC, C B-A-R-Q, and they can take it for their own pets. There's a fee bark as well for felines. And um, so they, so what we did was we took this questionnaire that's a validated dog behavior questionnaire. And we said, well, what's, um, what's, what's it like first week with your new dog from a shelter? And then what's it like at days 30, 
60 and then, um, uh, sorry, 30, uh, 90, and then uh, out to six months. And so we were trying to figure out what actual, what actually does happen after you adopt a dog from a shelter, because there was this unwritten rule or well, it was written, but really not research that says dogs, be, dog behavior changes at three days, three weeks, three months. And the three days kind of makes sense because your cortisol spikes and then it kind of takes a few days to acclimate and get, get back down. So we know that from shelter studies is if you measure a dog's cortisol, it'll spike when they get there and then it basically acclimates after a few days. But otherwise, there's not really much data that says that there's anything with that three weeks, three months. So we said, OK, well, what what does change? Well, the devil's in the details. It's not that the dog itself will change or change or settle at particular times. It's that certain behaviors change over time and the certain behaviors may change differently than other behaviors. Oh. So, for example, we know from this research that things like aggression. So that's something that we really worry about. It's a public health concern. It's a safety concern. It's a welfare concern. It's the number one presenting complaint for our practice. So things like aggression, those things actually ticked up. So aggression to an unfamiliar person actually ticked up at each time point. So in other words, that tells us that if you adopt a dog and say, hey, this is my dog at day seven, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have the same dog three months later or six months later in terms of that behavior. There are other behaviors that actually may get better a little bit over time. So for example, we found that separation issues might actually, they actually maintain for the first three months and then between three and six months actually just tick down just a little bit. So it's not necessarily how the dog changes in general. It's how certain behaviors may change. And so what we're hopeful is we will take that research and be able to at least counsel shelters and counsel dog owners to be like, hey, there are some changes that can happen. Let's look out for those. And then as you see things, let's address them earlier rather than later. And then how do you address them? Well, I don't know about your area, but in our area, um, we certainly have a lot of um, dog trainers who are using unscientific methods. So like things like um, punitive methods, punishment, um, aversive methods. Um, so things we would call positive punishment, which is a weird term, but it's adding something to reduce a behavior. So like a shock, a prong collar, um, things like that. So we have a lot of those types of trainers in our area. Um, I have seen an evolution for the good. I have seen more and more people come to the table having um, not having used some of those methods and um, recognizing early that that's not the best tool for, especially when we're talking about pets that have things like fears and anxieties. Yeah. Um, I, I think how we move forward as an industry, for me, I think it's going to have to involve regulation. And that's something that I haven't got involved with yet, but I think that's really the only way. I mean, you know, in the state of Ohio, you have to have a license to cut somebody's hair, but you do not have to have a license to train somebody's dog or right. address something like 
pretty profound aggression, major safety issues, separation anxiety. You don't have to have a license for that. You don't have to have any education. You can just put on your door that you are a dog behaviorist and you can say anything you want pretty much. So we have had a few people that we've gotten for uh, inappropriate uh uh, practice of veterinary medicine because they'll actually recommend dogs come off certain medications and changes, you know, like um, health changes. So that's really one avenue that we've tried to use to 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 um, crack down on some of these trainers. But otherwise, I I really firmly believe it's 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 going to have to take some regulations. And then I also hope as we continue to educate more veterinarians that they can also help advocate for our pets to get appropriate training. Yeah. I, I'm of the personal belief that shock collars should be banned everywhere. I would oh. sign that tomorrow or today, this minute. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. So I, it, it's one of those things that, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's never appropriate for your standard owner to go to a pet store, buy a shock collar and just start using. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really sad sometimes what happens. Well, and aren't you putting your dog at risk for created trauma and anxiety? Like why not just punish your dog, give it, you know, a little bit of pain and hope for the best. It just, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't cognitively make sense to me. Right. Yeah, it's it's one we struggle with. Um, my previous mentor here at Ohio State, Dr. Megan Heron, she is now the behavior director at a local shelter called Gigi Shelter. And she actually did some early research on this and said and showed that also those methods are dangerous to people. And so we know that they're going to cause dogs to be more aggressive towards their owners. Um, and it makes sense because you have now made yourself a threat mm -hmm. to, to your dog. So yeah, it's, it is, it is sad. The things that, that, that are, are done and, um, you know, kind of speaking towards some of our clients, people also come to the table with a lot of guilt and shame. And, um, and so we try to, you know, the, we all use the old adage of you're going to catch a fly more with honey than vinegar. So we, we try to get people on board with, well, hey, these methods work better, actually. And they don't have these potential risks that that you'll see with these other things. So we do have a lot of clients that come in um, that where we have to evolve some of the thinking about things. And it I also feel like a lot of clients are taken advantage of by these trainers and don't truly know or understand what their dog is going through and they're sold a bill of goods that's not true. Woo, that's a lot so far, isn't it? <laughs> Dr. Bolin and I talked for about 75 minutes and I figured that would make for too long of one episode. So we're splitting it into two episodes. Next Friday, you'll hear Dr. Boland walk me through his thoughts on behavioral euthanasia and how a doctor, the guardian, and the animal are a team that arrives at the decision together. Until then. I'm Angela Schneider, owner of Big White Dog Photography in Spokane, Washington, and your host at One Last Network, signing off to go get some Bella Snuggles. 
Listen to One Last Network on whichever podcast platform you prefer. We're on Spotify, Apple, and Amazon. Don't forget to hit follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you have a friend who might be interested in our content, make sure you share us with them. Thanks for listening.